Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. So nice to be with you uh, this morning. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Hebrews. The title of today's message is Hold Fast to Christ, Your High Priest, who is greater than all other priests. And you'll notice there's a part one there. The focal point of the book of Hebrews, the crux of the book of Hebrews is chapter 7. Chapter 7 is one entire passage. There is one argument, one flow of thought throughout chapter 7, but the chapter is too long for us to preach in a Sunday service. We'd be here way past 12 noon. It's best then to divide the passage into two parts. This is part one, the first 17 verses. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday our brother David will preach the second part. Fortunately for David, all the really good practical application is in part two. Part one is the foundation. It helps us to appreciate all that will be mentioned and taught in part two. Part one gives us the foundation, the background. It's really just a history lesson. There's not a whole lot in there that any of us are going to be able to take home and put into practice in our life. But there is one thing, and it's very interesting that the first song that we sang together has that very same idea in it that I think we all can do this week based on what's in these first 17 verses. What am I talking about? We sang, look to the sun, fix our eyes on the Savior. For the mature believer in Christ, what thrills their heart the most is to gaze upon the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, to pray to Him, to worship Him, to thank Him, to contemplate His infinite beauties and perfection. It thrills the heart. It fills us with a sense of awe and wonder and gratitude, not just for what He does in our life, not just for what He did on the cross, but for who He is, the God of all creation who was willing, who loved us enough to step down out of glory, become a man, and then begin his high priestly ministry, not by offering an animal sacrifice, but by offering himself as the sacrifice for sin, God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He began his high priestly ministry there on the cross. He continues his high priestly ministry. We'll find out, we've already seen it a couple of times in Hebrews. It'll be the focal point next week in the, in the rest of chapter 7. But he continues his high priestly ministry 
for us today and tomorrow throughout our lives in heaven where he stands before the Father, the glory of God, just like the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. And instead of sprinkling blood of an animal, he pleads his own blood on our behalf. Hopefully today's message, you will learn something about the Lord Jesus Christ that you can take home and thank him for. That he is your high priest who pleads his blood for you. This is exactly how he's revealed in chapter 7. Both in the first part and in the second part, he's revealed as the great high priest who is greater than the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood descended from one of the sons of Jacob, Levi or Levi. This was the focal point of Judaism. Their entire religious and social life revolved around the temple, the priesthood, the animal sacrifices. Their life in every respect was a religious life. It extended even to what they ate day after day. This was of such value to the Jews. There were no sacrifices for the Jews apart from the Levitical priesthood. They offered the sacrifices on, on the behalf of the sinner. They stood between a holy God and the sinner and offered those sacrifices. There was no representation before God apart from the priesthood. The priesthood was central. The priesthood was necessary. The priesthood was indispensable in the life of a Jew. And remember this epistle. The context of this epistle is that there were Jews who professed faith in Jesus Christ. Some were true believers. Some were not. Some had turned from Christ in the face of persecution and went back to Judaism. Others were tempted to do the same thing. To find in Judaism and the Levitical priesthood that was still offering sacrifices when this letter was written, to find in Judaism and the priesthood and the animal sacrifices the righteousness they knew they needed to be accepted by God. It's in this context that the writer is going to show them in chapter 7 that that is not only an inferior system that can never make anyone perfect, it's inferior to Christ. Not only is it inferior to Christ, but it's superseded by Christ. Christ has replaced the old system. There is nothing viable to go back to, to turn back to. They can't turn back to Judaism. Today, God wants you to know 
that Christ, your perfect high priest, is your perfect high priest who will represent you before God. He pleads your case. And God only sees you and I as in Christ. He no longer sees the sinner. He sees the blood of his beloved son. He sees one of his blood-bought children. That's how he sees you. We are who he says we are. So let's begin to look to the son. Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus Christ. He is not Jesus Christ, as we're going to see. He is not the pre-incarnate Christ. He's not an appearance of Christ to Abraham. We're going to see that. But Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. Just like if we took a photograph of Grace Gospel Church, that is an image, a picture of Grace Gospel Church. That is not Grace Gospel Church. The same with Melchizedek. He is a picture of Christ. There are similarities. Melchizedek is not identical to Christ. No more than a photograph of Grace Gospel Church building is a picture, is actually Grace Gospel Church building. There are similarities, but there are differences. The photograph most likely is much smaller, the photograph of our church building, than the actual building. There will be differences between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin by looking at the history behind Christ's high priesthood. For this Melchizedek met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This is what Melchizedek did. The writer begins with this. The key is that he went out from his city and met Abraham and blessed him. The story of Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14, in just three verses, verses 18, 19, and 20. That's all that's recorded about Melchizedek of his actual lifetime. About a thousand years later, David would write in Psalm 110 concerning Messiah. This is a messianic psalm. The Jewish the Jews considered it to be about Messiah. He would write about a thousand years after Melchizedek lived that Messiah is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What a shock to the Jews who had already spent 500 years under Judaism under the law of Moses given at Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. What a shock. There's another priesthood. After the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we said that he was a picture of Christ. In Genesis 14, that's brought out 
very clearly. When he went out from his city, he brought with him two things, according to Genesis 14. And he gave them to Abraham. You know what those were? He brought out bread and wine. Conjuring up images of how our Lord, on the night that he was betrayed, would take bread and break it and say, take, eat all of you. This is my body which is broken for you. And then likewise, he would take the cup, the third cup of the Passover celebration, the cup of blessing. And he would say, uh, he would bless that cup and then he would say, take and share it amongst yourself. It is the blood, my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. Clearly, Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. But like any picture, it is not the same thing and is not always perfect. But there are enough similarities that the writer to the Hebrew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would set forth Melchizedek as a picture of Jesus Christ. One who is made similar to Jesus Christ. Melchizedek brought out that bread and wine. The writer focuses on the blessing, and the blessing will become very important as he reasons with his reader on the superiority of Christ and Christ's high priesthood. But he blessed him, reminding him that all his success in battle, in the battle that he just fought, against kings and their armies who had kidnapped his nephew Lot, Lot's family, all that he had, and carried them away. Abraham, a man with perhaps around 200 of his servants armed, defeated kings and their armies. This was striking to the reader. Surely God was with him. And God, who had blessed Abraham and who had said that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You'll recall that from when we studied the life of Abraham. God gave him that promise. The one who had been blessed by God is now blessed by Melchizedek, who is a picture of the Son of God. After God's blessing on Abraham... Any other blessing would pale by comparison unless that blessing also came from one who was equal to God. Melchizedek, being a picture of Christ, is able to give that blessing. In response, what did Abraham do? To whom? To Melchizedek also Abraham gave or apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. The tenth part... The older English word is tithe, tithe. Now, I do not want to make this message about Christian financial stewardship because the passage is not about that. But I need to mention something here. Why? Because so often this passage, verse 2 and verse 4, where the tithe is mentioned again, are used by some to teach 
that Christians must give 10% every week to the Lord. But that's not taught here. Abraham did it, but there's no instruction for you or I to do it. For our purposes, there are two types of Scripture. The descriptive that describes something. It tells us what took place or what is taking place. It's a description of what actually happened, what someone did. In this case, it's a description of what Abraham did. There's descriptive passages and there's prescriptive passages. We all know what a prescriptive passage would be like. I think probably everyone here, it's probably safe to say, we've all had a doctor write a prescription for us or someone in our family. And we've had to go to the pharmacy and fill that prescription. And then what do we do with that prescription? We do, hopefully, what we should do is we do what it says. Take two tablets and call the doctor in the morning. Finish the prescription. If it says take two tablets every four hours, that doesn't mean take one tablet every three hours, nor does it mean take three tablets every five hours. It's two tablets every four hours. That's a prescription. It tells us what we ought to do. So I need to ask, in this verse, where does it address you or I? Where does it address the Hebrews to whom this letter was written? There's no you there. There's no us there. There's no we there. There's no I there. There's Abraham. This is not prescriptive. Abraham's not even told what to do here. This passage describes it does not prescribe. Oh, but Paul Abraham was a great man of faith. He's the father of the faithful. Uh, shouldn't we follow his example? Shouldn't we? Well, you could. It doesn't mean that you have to. Here's a real problem with making doctrine that we instruct others that they must do this. Here's a problem of making doctrine from descriptive passages. Passages that don't give instruction, but merely say what happens. There's a problem when people do this. You will always see that they only pick and choose those narrative details, those descriptive details that they can use to show their predetermined end goal. This is what Abraham did. He gave a tenth. Did he give a tenth of everything that he had? No. It tells us exactly what he gave a tenth of. He gave a tenth of the spoils of victory. See, they don't do that. If you want to use this for, it would still be wrong to use a descriptive verse 
to make a doctrine that every Christian must follow. But if you did do it, you should use all the narrative details. So, the next time you gather your family together and you go out to war against the king and his army and you're victorious and you bring back the spoils of victory, then give a tenth to the Lord the next time you do that. Because that's what Abraham did. He gave a tenth. He tithed out of the spoils of victory. It would still be wrong to use the verse that way because it's descriptive, not prescriptive. But that is at least that ridiculous scenario I just painted is more faithful to the wording of the verse than what others try and do about it. Real quick, because I want to get away from this financial aspect. You know, we don't talk a lot about money here at Grace Gospel Church. The last message you heard at Grace Gospel Church was part of our Thinking Biblically series about 18 months ago. I preached on Christian financial stewardship. Maybe this coming year we will have another message. Grace Gospel Church is not about money. Yes, this beautiful building has a mortgage. There are expenses. God meets all those needs through you. And the preachers up here and the elders, we do not have to beat you up about giving. You all love the Lord so much. And most of you who have been a Christian for any length of time, you understand the importance of Christian financial stewardship. God doesn't prescribe a fixed percent in the New Testament. In fact, you'll recall, and I showed you right from the Old Testament Scriptures, the Jews, at least, did not just tithe 10%. There were three 10% tithes. 10% every year, a second 10% every year, so 20% every year, and then the third year, a third tithe. 20%, 20%, 30%, 20%, 20%, 30%. That's what they gave, not just 10%. The people who insist on 10%, they don't understand this. Why don't they insist on 23 and a third percent per year? which is the average of 2020-30. What is the principle of giving for the Christian in the New Testament? There's a lot of verses that we could talk about, but perhaps the central passage would be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, puts it this way. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's a lot more I could say about that, but this message is not about giving. God doesn't prescribe a fixed percent. For, for some 10% is way too much. For others, 10% is way too little. And we know who we are. For some, for some, maybe at some stage in their life, they can't give 10%, 15%, 20%. 
God has so ordained their life that it's just 5%. I, I, I will confess to you, there were times early on in my marriage where we could only give about 5%. Not because we're squandering money, but because I was making $160 a week. Sure, that was a while ago, so maybe it was $300 a week now, maybe $280. Who knows in today's dollars? And every time we would give, I wished I had more to give. Years later, the Lord would bless us so abundantly, and we were able to give, let me just say, several times that amount. And then we rejoiced, my wife and I, we would often rejoice that God had so blessed us that we had so much to give. So if there's anyone here who can't hit this imaginary 10% number for the Christian, don't, don't beat yourself up about it. Sure, if you're squandering money on all sorts of things and you're not giving the Lord the choicest, as Abraham did, okay, that's something you and the Lord can deal with in your prayer closet. But if you're trying to be a good steward and you can't hit 10% or 11.5% or whatever, don't beat yourself up about it. Talk to the Lord about it. He knows your heart. But if you can give more, the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Do that as well. Remember, we all are going to give an account of ourselves to the Lord. And for those who only have two small coins, two mites like that widow to give, what did Christ say about that? God judges our giving and everything we do differently than man judges. The wealthy had their servants sound a trumpet in the temple and announce, my master is now about to make a great gift to the temple. And after doing that, along comes this widow with no servant to blow a trumpet, and she casts in two mites. They hardly made a tinkle in the pot. And the Lord said, do you see that widow? She gave more than them all. They gave out of their abundance. She gave all that she had. The Lord judges differently. He appreciates anything you give joyfully and not under compulsion. Okay, enough said about finances. Uh, let, let's move on and get back to the passage. But I hope you see the next time someone tells you you must give 10%, for some of us, we'd say, no, that's too little. We should give more. For others, don't feel bad that you can't give 10. The Lord knows your heart. Who was Melchizedek in his position? We'll look at his person in a moment, but in his position. For this Melchizedek, this Melchizedek. See, his story is found in 
Genesis 14. His name is mentioned again in Psalm 110. The New Testament says much more about him. Recall that the writer introduced Melchizedek in chapter 5, and he had a lot that he wanted to say to them about Melchizedek because he's a picture of Christ. But he said to them at at the end of chapter 5, he said, he said, of him, we have much more to say. Of Melchizedek, we have much more to say. But we can't say it now because you have become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have again the need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. They were like babes in Christ. They couldn't handle solid food. The teaching about Melchizedek is solid food. It's for the mature. Why? Because it focuses us on Christ, who he is and what he's done. For the babe in Christ, they're more concerned about, okay, I'm saved. I have a happy and blessed life. Oh, this is great. But for the mature in Christ, they've left that behind. Christianity is not about them. It's about Jesus Christ. That's why Melchizedek, being a picture of Christ, is solid food for the mature. He says, and we will speak about this, about these things, if God wills, if you're mature enough. But now he goes on to give the mature teaching about Melchizedek in chapter 7. If the teaching about Melchizedek thrills your heart, This morning, as you see more about Christ, that's an indication of your spiritual maturity, that you are so caught up with Christ, the person of Christ, the the glorious Savior, the lovely Lord Jesus. When that thrills your heart, when he's your all in all, when he's your reason for living and serving, not to receive praise from men, but for him, to honor him and glorify him. That is an indication of your maturity in the Christian faith. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. This would be startling to the Jews, to the Hebrews who read this. Throughout the ancient world, kings and priests were separate, not just amongst the Jews, but amongst other peoples as well. Here is one man, Melchizedek, who's both king and priest, both offices in one combined. Wow, this would have blown the Jews' mind. The priests in Judaism were descendants of Levi. The kings were descendants of Judah. They didn't mix. The Levites belonged unto the Lord. In Numbers 8, they were set apart and consecrated to the Lord. Here's a man who is both. How about Jesus Christ? He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. He was the prophet who walked the earth and proclaimed the words of God. Gave God's message word for word. He's our priest from the time of the cross till he comes again for us. And he's the king at his second coming when he sets up his kingdom on the earth 
and rules for a thousand years and then forever throughout eternity. There's a sense, yes, in which he's even our king today. He rules over a spiritual kingdom. He rules over the hearts of those who love him and have trusted him for their eternal salvation. Melchizedek combined both. This would have been so startling to these Jews who were tempted to go back to Judaism that separated the kingly line and the priestly line, two different sons of Jacob. He was priest of the Most High God. The Levites were priests of Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the name of God used in relationship, in covenant relationship with his people. The Most High God is the God over all gods, over the false gods of the pagans. It's universal. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone, just like the gospel of Jesus Christ was not just for the Jews. It was for everyone. He was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. The Hebrew word for king is melech. The Hebrew word for my king changes form to melchi, melchi. That's the Melchi of Melchizedek, of Melchizedek. My king, and Zedek means righteous. My king is righteous, is the literal translation of Melchizedek. He was king of righteousness and then also king of Salem. Salem is an old name for Jerusalem, the city where God has chosen to cause his name to dwell where his glory resided. He was king of righteousness and king of Salem. Salem is a form of the Hebrew word shalom, peace, the common greeting. Shalom aleichem, peace to you. Aleichem shalom, to you peace is the reply. He was king of righteousness and king of peace. The Psalms tell us that righteousness and peace have kissed. The scripture actually says that. Righteousness and peace has kissed. They've kissed in Jesus. He is the one to whom the believer receives his righteousness. When we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans. Justification is technically the act of being declared righteous. Righteousness has to do with the law. Are you on the right side of the law or the wrong side of the law? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul writes to the Romans. Every one of us here, me, all of you, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all stand on the wrong side of God's moral law. We've all broken it. None of us are righteous, not even one, he writes in Romans 3. Yet righteousness and peace have kissed in Jesus. Melchizedek, being a picture of Christ, is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Jesus Christ his righteousness is imparted to us, therefore having been justified, declared righteous by faith. 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes before peace. But for all who have trusted in Christ's finished work on the cross, we have his righteousness. We are now on the right side of the law. God sees us as right because we are in Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness, not our unrighteousness. And we have peace with God because of Christ. That's who Melchizedek was in his position. What a beautiful picture of Christ. I hope this thrills your heart. I I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this. It just fosters an attitude of gratitude, a spirit of worship and thanksgiving, not just for what Christ has done, but for who he is. Who is Melchizedek in his person? Now, this verse is very confusing to some people, but you're going to see how clear it is. Regarding Melchizedek, it's without father, wow, that's strange, without mother, that's even stranger, without genealogy, no ancestry, having neither beginning of days, huh, nor end of life, but made like, literally, and probably a better way to translate this, literally you could translate this, but similar to the Son of God. Not the same as, but similar to. Remember, he's just a picture of Christ. There's a lot of similarities as as we have already seen. But similar to the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, there's all sorts of crazy ideas about Melchizedek from this verse. That really... It was an angel who came out of Salem and brought out bread and wine to Abraham and blessed Abraham. But the passage says, neither beginning of days. Angels aren't eternal. They were created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it couldn't be an angel. The writer rules it out right here. Oh, maybe it was Jesus Christ a pre-incarnate, that is, before his birth, appearance of Christ to Abraham. I mean, after all, boy, Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. Even better if he is Christ. Well, without father. He was begotten of the Holy Spirit. He had a stepfather. Without mother. Wait, Mary. Christ had a mother. Couldn't be Christ. Without genealogy. Matthew records Joseph's genealogy back to David. Luke records Mary's genealogy back to David. They were both from the tribe of Judah like David. There is a genealogy. Melchizedek can't be Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ, having neither beginning of days. Only God is eternal and had no beginning, always existed nor end of life. Even Christ's earthly life ended at one point. Yes, he rose from the dead three days later, but his life did end. But similar to, you see, he's not the same as the Son of God, but similar to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He remains a priest perpetually. What the writer's talking about here is as far as is recorded in Scripture. Read Genesis 14, verses 18, 19, and 20. See what it says about Melchizedek. 
Doesn't tell us who his mother and father were. Doesn't tell us his genealogy. Doesn't record his birth nor his death. Doesn't say he ever ceased to be a priest. The writer's talking about the scriptures. And you'll see that if you recall when, when our brother Joey read the last verse of this passage, of this part of the chapter, is a quote of scripture. Psalm 110, verse 4, where Melchizedek, a thousand years after he lived, David writes about him. Thou art a priest, speaking of Messiah, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's all scripture recorded about him in the Old Testament. That's what the writer's talking about. Because his whole argument, this entire argument is based upon the scriptures. And we're going to see that as we move through it. He's referring over and over again to what is in the law of Moses. What is in the scriptures. Even talking about Melchizedek, he's referring back to Genesis chapter 14. For the writer and for the readers, everything is about the scriptures. And that shouldn't surprise us because they were Jews. And the word of God was so important to them. Their entire life, every aspect of their life was organized around the word of God, especially the law of Moses. So let's see, what kind of lessons does the writer draw from the, this history of Melchizedek, this history that is behind Christ's high priesthood? The first thing is that Melchizedek was paid tithes, paid a tenth of the spoils of victory by Abraham. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Not just the worst tenth, he gave the choicest tenth. The point that he's making in Melchizedek being paid by Abraham, observe how great this man was. He's greater than Abraham because Abraham paid him. Melchizedek gave him bread, he gave him wine, and he gave him a blessing. In return, Abraham gives him a tenth of the choicest spoils. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. There's three names in Judaism that rank above all others. Perhaps Abraham and Moses are at the top of the list. But a close second would be David. Those three names, Abraham, Moses, David, amongst all the biblical characters, those were the most highly honored by the Jews. And here, Abraham, arguably tied with Moses, depending on the Jew, as to the greatest person in all of Jewish history, Melchizedek is greater than him. That's the point that he's making. Observe how great Melchizedek was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the faithful, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Melchizedek is great. He is like Christ, who is the greatest of all. King of kings, Lord of lords, greatest of the great. Melchizedek was treated like Old Testament priests. 
instead of them turning back to Judaism and the Old Testament priesthood, there was someone who was like the Old Testament priesthood, but, as we'll see, even greater. The sons of Levi or Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from their brethren. That's the second of the two yearly 10% tithes. The first 10% went to the Lord. The second 10% went to the Levites. They have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from their brethren. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from Levi collected a tenth from Abraham. He's making an important point here. Melchizedek was not a Levite. He was not in Abraham's lineage. He wasn't Abraham's father. The scripture records who that was. It wasn't his grandfather. The scripture records who that was. He had no blood relationship to Abraham. And yet Abraham, the father of the faithful, through whom Levi and all his brothers would be descendant from, they all look back to their great-grandfather. Levi and Judah look back to their great-grandfather, Abraham. Abraham paid a tithe to him. Melchizedek was treated no differently than the priests. And yet he's separate from the system of Judaism, the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. He's going to stress this point now. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from Levi collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed. He'd already shown that he's greater based on the tithe, the tenth that Abraham gave him. Now he's greater based on another thing. And bless the one who had the promises. Abraham received God's promises. Melchizedek blesses him. But without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So he's not only greater because Abraham paid a tithe to him, he's greater because the lesser Abraham was blessed by the greater Melchizedek. The writer is taking arguably the most important figure in Judaism, equal to Moses. And he's bringing him down below Melchizedek, who's only a picture of Christ. Christ is the fullness of what Melchizedek is trying to picture. If Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, how much more is Christ greater than Abraham and all the Jewish system? Melchizedek was greater since as far as the scriptural record goes, he did not die. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. Who is the witness? It's the scripture. The scripture doesn't record his death. The scripture, Enoch didn't die, but the scripture records God took him. Elijah didn't die, but the scripture records that God took him up. Here, in the case of Melchizedek, there is no scriptural witness, no scriptural testimony. And so, in that sense, as far as the scriptural record goes, it's as if he were living on. 
And so he's greater than even Abraham who died. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham's descendants. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi. He's centering in on Levi because they were going to turn away from the high priesthood of Christ and go back to the Levitical priesthood. Christ's sacrifice is not what I need. I need the repeated again and again animal sacrifices of Judaism. And he's, he's showing here not only was Melchizedek greater than Abraham, but he's greater than Levi, the very priesthood that you want to go back to. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, pays tithes. Why? For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Lastly, what are some of the conclusions we can draw from the history behind Christ's priesthood? Some of the implications, the ramifications. Here they are. Melchizedek reveals the Levitical priesthood did not make anyone perfect. Perfection is not through the law and through works righteousness. If you're trusting in works today, your works to save you, and you're trusting in any priestly system to provide you salvation other than Jesus Christ, the great high priest, other than the sacrifice of Christ and his shed blood, you will never be perfect. The writer says, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood or anything else anyone is trusting in, for on its basis the people received the law, what need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Aaron was the first high priest, a descendant of Levi. The Levitical system didn't make anyone perfect. If it did, what need would there be for Christ, who is like Melchizedek, to arise and be high priest? What is he saying? We could put it this way. If there were another way to be saved, why would God give his only beloved son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the sins of the world? If there were another way, how many of you would sacrifice your only begotten son if there were another way? None of us would. We'd always go for the other way. Anything but my children. Take even me. Leave my children alone. And a mother will say that's stronger than any father. None of us would. Yet God did because there was no other way. Only through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. Melchizedek reveals that the Mosaic law is no longer in effect. Sadly, there are some Christians even today who feel they need to keep the law of Moses. For when the priesthood is changed, he's just shown that the Levitical priesthood has been changed by the priesthood of Jesus Christ. If the priesthood is changed, of necessity, it's not optional, it's mandatory, it's necessary that there take place a change of law also. 
If the Levitical priesthood is no more, the law of Moses that, dis- that prescribes the Levitical priesthood is no more. If the priesthood goes, the law goes. There is no righteousness by the law. The Mosaic law is no longer in effect. Does that mean the Christian can live any way they want? No. God has a moral law. He had a moral law before the law was given to Moses at Sinai. He has a moral law after the Mosaic law was fulfilled and done away with. The scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, have a lot of commands for the Christian to obey. It's not thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's do and don't do. We don't get the same formulary, the same thou shalt wording. But there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament epistles written to Christians. God is still a moral God. Paul writes, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. But the Mosaic law itself, as an expression of God's moral law, as an expression of the righteousness that God required and what is needed when that law is broken, the sacrifices, that has been fulfilled and done away with. When the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of the law also. This is what he's been arguing for. The Levitical priesthood is gone. The Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ is now in effect. Melchizedek reveals the Levitical priesthood is no longer in effect. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. Jesus Christ comes from another tribe, the tribe of Judah that David was descended from. He's called David's greater son. And no one from Judah ever officiated at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Now that the Melchizedekian high priesthood of Christ is in effect, the Levitical priesthood is no longer in effect. Christ's priesthood is like Melchizedek. This is even clearer that the Levitical priesthood is no more. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who, that is Christ, has become such, not based on a physical requirement. You see, to be a Levitical priest, you didn't need to be a holy man. You didn't need to be a moral man. You didn't need to be a righteous man. You just needed to be descended from Levi. It's who, whose family you were born into. Not so with Christ. He had no genealogical right to be a Levitical priest, but he had a right to be a greater priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has become high priest, not based on a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, the life that he lived. God did not allow the Holy One to undergo decay. And he was raised again to newness of life and sits at the Father's right hand. Scripture testifies to Christ's priesthood. Quoting from Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, it is attested of Christ, you are a priest forever 
according to the order of Melchizedek. All of this argument is based upon Scripture. Scripture is all that mattered to the writer and to the readers of this epistle. Hopefully, Scripture is what matters to you and I. Hopefully today and throughout this week, you and I will look to the Son and fix our eyes on the Savior. Today, will you understand that Christ is your high priest who represents you before God? When sin beats you up, know that Christ is there pleading his blood. God doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in Christ. Today, will you begin to thank Christ for his high priestly service on your behalf? Did you ever do that before? Christ is standing there. At the end of the, near the end of the chapter, the writer is going to write, therefore he, Jesus Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Christ is your high priest pleading your case before the Father, even now and for every day, as long as you're on this earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for our blessed, glorious Lord. How we thank you for our high priest. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we thank you so much for pleading our case and ever living to make intercession for us. For, oh, dear God, we acknowledge our sin before you and Acknowledge that we need an intercessor and not any man but your beloved son whoever lives to make intercession for us. Dear God, would you be pleased this week to help us to fix our eyes on our glorious high priest, your wonderful son. Help us to be caught up with him. Fill our hearts with wonder and awe as we contemplate prayerfully our glorious Lord before you, fill us with a a spirit of worship that brings honor and glory to your name. Amen.